Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the Inside the Board Study Smarter series dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed on your exam. I am Patrick Beeman, your host. Welcome to 2019's Study Smarter series for the USMLE Step 1. In this episode today, I really just want to go over the plan for this year and give you an idea of what the content will look like. We've got a lot more of an expansive kind of approach to this. So what's the plan this year? Well, the plan is each week or two weeks, we're going to focus on a section of USMLE Step 1 content um, covering as much as we can between now and the middle of June, all the subjects that you will see on step one. Now, of course, our plan is not going to be exhaustive, but with each topic, we want to provide what we think are high-yield questions that cover each of these topics to give you something to take away from listening to our episodes and bring with you on exam day. We feel that the Step 1 Study Smarter series will help you, you know, learn on the go, just as our other podcast episodes do, and of course our All Audio Bank. To put it in perspective, over on iTunes, Osteo Mike reviewed last year's Study Smarter series and said, Thank you for making the ITB podcast and Audio Bank. I use both while studying for the USMLE Step 1 and Comlex Level 1. I can remember seeing specific must-know topics on my exams that you discussed during either the podcast or Audio QBank, and it certainly helped me. I will continue to use both for third year as I prepare for Step 2 Level 2. Thank you. My USMLE Step 1 was 253, Comlex Level 1, 714. So that's not to toot our own horn, of course, but the goal is to be able to encourage you to continue to listen to these episodes and, of course, to share it with your friends. But in general, what we're looking at is covering some anatomy stuff first, moving on to biochem, cardio, pulmonary, GI, endocrine, micro, and immunology renal stuff, and then hemonc. During our first Study Smarter series, we did mini episodes targeting microbiology. This year, we're doing something similar with a kind of focused series of mini episodes on neurology or neuroscience type stuff, as well as the behavioral science um, topics. The overall plan each week is to present an enhanced version of a prior episode from the Study Smarter series, uh, wherein we will add content from our audio cue bank and or additional content from Physio. Next, 
we'll be presenting one to two episodes of brand new content for that week's section. Sometimes we'll be presenting an episode which is composed mainly of our audio QBank questions, and then every one to two weeks we'll be adding a neuro or psych mini-episode as well. So why did I mention physio before? Well, to help you with your step one prep, we are launching a podcast along with the guys from Physio, uh, Physiology by Physio, hosted by our own Greg Rodden, whom you've probably heard on our podcast before. He's the creator of the Med School Phys podcast. This new podcast, Physiology by Physio, covers in-depth, high-yield topics related to physiology for the boards. It's enhanced with audio-optimized excerpts from the Physio platform. So right now, when this episode concludes, search your favorite podcatcher for Physiology by Physio, an Inside the Boards podcast. Make sure to subscribe so that you know when new episodes are released. You can head over there now to hear the trailer and plan in particular for that podcast, as well as hear about a discount code that Physio is offering to Inside the Board's listeners. Just to give you an idea of what this is going to look like, I'll be including an excerpt from the first episode of the Physiology by Physio podcast within this episode. We'll also give you an idea of the types of question dissections that uh, you'll be hearing on this podcast. So I'm going to break down one high-yield practice question. But first, please listen to this message from our sponsor, Common Bond. We have Pete Wiley here from Common Bond. He is the Vice President of Student Lending. First thing I just want to ask, why consider a loan with Common Bond? Sure. So, you know, we've designed our medical student loan uh, to have significant interest savings versus the government grad plus loan, because we know from our work with doctors and dentists that their outcomes after school give them, you know, the opportunity to have a better interest rate while they're in school. And so our products all have lower interest rates than the grad plus loan. They don't require a cosigner. So the medical student can take them out themselves. And over the life of repayment, we'll save thousands of dollars in interest expense as a result. Can you give me a practical example of what a student's savings could be um, with Common Bond versus the federal Grad Plus loans or other federal products? Sure. So the most direct comparison is the 10-year fully deferred product because that's what federal student loans start at. That's the repayment time, and they all start as fully deferred. And so if someone borrows $50,000 in our 10-year fully deferred product and gets our median rate, they'll save nearly $10,000 in interest savings over the life of normal repayment of, of that loan compared to what they would pay with the government. Okay. Well, that's $10,000 a lot of money. For those who may not be as familiar with private loans, what's the difference between a public loan and a private loan? So the major difference is how you repay the loan afterward. So the government loans have different repayment options, income-based repayment primarily, when you graduate. 
private loans have different repayment options. So our loan specifically has a $100 a month minimum payment while someone's in a qualified residency to allow someone to get started in their career without needing to make full repayment. Other than that, you know, the protections are largely the same and really it comes down to the rate of interest on the loan and therefore the cost to the student. This is the Study Smarter podcast, so everyone who listens to this is worried about their board exams. Can you use the monies from Common Bond to pay your board exam fees? The short answer is it depends. So if the school is including that in your cost of attendance, then we can use this loan as proceeds. Really, we are working with your school to determine your eligibility and the amount that you still have remaining in your cost of attendance, and we can fund up to that amount. If these expenses are not included there, we won't be able to use this loan for it, unfortunately, because we disperse the funds to the school directly. And then any you know, overage or, or refund is then provided to the student. Go to commonbond.co slash ITB to learn more. And sounds like to save thousands and thousands of dollars. Thanks, Pete. All right, here is our question for today. A 43-year-old male is involved in a motor vehicle accident. He is brought to the emergency room for evaluation. He reports pain in his left elbow and is unable to raise the left arm. His vital signs are within normal limits. Physical examination shows decreased sensation over the superior lateral side of the left upper extremity. An x-ray confirms fracture of the surgical neck of the humerus. Which of the following nerves is most likely damaged? I think before approaching any question, as you've probably heard advice from uh, many leaders within the medical education space on our podcasts, uh, is to first look at the interrogatory. So what is the interrogatory here? And in fact, I think you should do this uh, first and foremost when you're uh, studying or on the actual exam. The interrogatory here is which of the following nerves is most likely damaged? So with that, then you go back and approach the vignette. After you've looked at the interrogatory, I also highly suggest you do not yet look at the answer choices. First, the interrogatory then review the vignette and break down that vignette into its essential parts. So in this one, we've got a 43-year-old man with trauma to the left arm with an inability to raise the left arm, that is, abduct the left arm, and there is decreased sensation over essentially the deltoid area, the superior lateral side of the left upper extremity, and we've got a fracture of the surgical neck of the humerus. So basically the question then is, damage to which nerve accounts for all of these findings? Decreased sensation over the deltoid, inability to abduct the arm in the context of a fracture of the surgical neck of the humerus. So let's look at the answer choices. A, musculocutaneous nerve. B, the axillary. C, the radial or D, the ulnar nerve? The correct answer here is B, the axillary nerve, and let's look into and break down why. 
All right, so here we're looking at a case about the dreaded brachial plexus. As you probably know, the brachial plexus involves nerve roots from C5 through T1. And the main takeaway point here that I want you to remember is that fracture of the surgical neck of the humerus, which is located on the superior portion of the humerus, is a boards-worthy mechanism of injury for the axillary nerve. The axillary nerve covers sensation to the lateral portion of the upper extremity, uh, essentially that kind of like deltoid area. It also innervates the deltoid and teres minor muscles. Those are the only two you have to remember for the axillary nerve because it's the only two muscles it innervates. What do these muscles do? Well, the teres minor adducts and laterally rotates the arm, and the deltoid mainly abducts the arm. In a question like this, if going through that three-step process, reading the interrogatory first, reading the vignette, breaking down the vignette to its essential parts, and then rephrasing the interrogatory in your own words, I guess that's a four-step process, if that doesn't help you or that doesn't lead to a correct answer using the cover the answers test, Uh, because that is part of the question writer's goal uh, when they submit questions to the boards. Each question should satisfy the cover the answers test, meaning you should be able to arrive at the answer without looking at the answer choices. But let's say you didn't have uh, an answer when you got to uh, the answer choices after that four-step process. In that case, it comes down to process of elimination. And when you approach the process of elimination, when you're studying or actually taking the exam, here's what I would suggest you do. You need some sort of framework. Take the first one that you know something about and write down or note the things you do actually know about the particular answer choice. So the first answer, A, (laughs) musculocutaneous nerve, what do we know about that? And a lot of this is memorization. So if you know a portion of one of these, two of these, but don't know anything or can't remember anything about the others, that's okay. Of course, you just do your best. Uh, But uh, here's some info. The musculocutaneous nerve, uh, its nerve roots are C5 through C7. It provides sensation over the lateral or radial side of the forearm and innervates the biceps which, as a muscle, flexes the elbow and supinates the forearm. The musculocutaneous nerve is usually injured as a result of trauma. We've already reviewed the correct answer, which was the axillary nerve. But what was next? That was C, the radial nerve. So the radial nerve innervates the upper arm and forearm posteriorly, It originates from C5 through T1 spinal roots, and the radial nerve provides the function of extending the wrist and elbow, as well as the metacarpophalangeal joints of the digits. The mechanism of injury to the radial nerve is a mid-shaft fracture of the humerus, which is a bit inferior to the surgical neck of the humerus, uh, as well as compression at the axilla. So this is the so-called Saturday night palsy, um, where you're leaning your armpit over a chair, or as in the use of crutches. This is characterized by wrist drop, 
So the wrist drop looks like loss of elbow, wrist, and finger extension, decreased grip strength, and loss of sensation over the posterior arm, forearm, and dorsal hand. The last one was the ulnar nerve. It can kind of be considered the opposite nerve of the radial. At least that's how I've always thought of it. The mechanism of injury for an ulnar nerve lesion uh, can be a fracture of the medial epicondyle of the humerus, the clavicle, or the hook of hamate. Ulnar nerve lesions manifest as a loss of sensation over the medial one and a half digits, so the pinky and ring finger, which leads to the so-called claw hand because the ulnar nerve also is involved in wrist flexion, spreading the fingers, and finger extensions. So if the fingers can't extend, they will be flexed, the ring and pinky finger, leading to this claw hand sort of thing. You also see radial deviation of the wrist. The brachial plexus is a pretty complex anatomical subject. So I think the best way to study it is to look up a review on uh, YouTube or uh, using whatever textbook or review resource works for you, and then finding a practice question to anchor uh, your memory to each lesion or um, affected part or the result of each nerve's injury uh, to that particular nerve. If you were a question writer, and this can help focus your study, um, there's a few things you could do to this vignette to change it up. So if you've got somebody with a, a fracture of the surgical neck of the humerus, a mechanism of injury, signs of nerve damage, in this case, the inability to raise the left arm, decreased sensation over the superior lateral side of the left upper extremity, that would be enough to get you to a, um, a kind of pathway to ask a few things about this sort of clinical situation. Here we focused on which of the following nerves is most likely damaged, but another way to kind of set up the question would be to change the interrogatory to which of the following muscles is most likely involved. Um, and in the case of the axillary nerve, as I said before, um, it innervates both the teres minor and deltoid muscles, so that'd be one way to do it. Um, another thing you could look at is um, asking about the nerve roots, so which of the following nerve roots is most likely involved in, um, in this patient's presentation? For the axillary nerve, it's C5 and 6, which... I kind of remember by axillary is A, it's at the beginning of the alphabet. C5 and 6 are at the beginning of the nerve roots of the brachial plexus. I don't know if that helps, but maybe. And then the other thing that they could ask is, is something about the blood supply. So with this mechanism of injury and this clinical presentation, they might add you know, the, the presence of like a hematoma or something on the arm and ask which of the following vessels is most likely injured and then give the similar vignette with uh, the description of an axillary nerve injury. And in this case, it would be the 
posterior circumflex humeral artery. Nerves and arteries are usually named by the bones or regions uh, with which they're associated, uh, but there are some exceptions, and the axillary uh, nerve is one of them. So fracture at the surgical neck of the humerus can injure the axillary nerve or the posterior circumflex humeral artery. And now let's hear an excerpt from Physiology by Physio. Here's host and soon-to-be pediatrics resident, Greg Rodden. The next topic is to talk about the organization of a muscle. So we know that the sarcomere is the fundamental unit of contraction. However, groups of sarcomeres ultimately form what? Myofibrils. And then myofibrils form into groups um, within what? Myofibers, right? And myofibers are the individual muscle cells themselves. And then muscle cells organize themselves into fascicles. And then fascicles will ultimately organize themselves into a full muscle. So surrounding these structures that we just listed, we have a few important uh, structures called the endomyceum, perimyceum, and epimyceum. So endomyceum um, surrounds what? Surrounds individual muscle fibers. Perimyceum surrounds the muscle fascicles. And then the epimyceum surrounds the entire muscle itself. And one important thing to remember about the perimyceum is that something courses within the perimyceum. Well, it's actually the blood vessels and nerves that help to supply the muscle. Okay, here's where we'll have our first transition to physio content. They occasionally reference figures which are in the videos, but he does a great job of verbally explaining what's going on. If you're really having trouble picturing it, try a quick Google Images search for the Golgi tendon organ, etc. to help remind yourself of the context as needed. Okay, let's move on to discussing Golgi tendon organs, or GTOs. This is figure 9.5 from your text, which illustrates the Golgi tendon organ physiology. Golgi tendon organs, or GTOs, are an important part of the negative feedback mechanism whereby an excessively stretched muscle can cause forced relaxation. From the image, we can see the GTO, or Golgi tendon organ, right here. Notice how it's located between the muscle-tendon junction, so the tendon and the muscle. The GTO is innervated by sensory axons called type 1B sensory axons, which convey stretch-related information specific to the GTO. There are also type 1A sensory axons and type 2 sensory axons, which sense things like proprioception and changes in velocity, but these are not very high yield for step 1. For step 1, it's most important to know that the GTO is innervated by type 1B sensory axons, which send stretch-related information to an interneuron within the spinal cord. From the image, we can see the interneuron right here. Notice how the neuron is an inhibitory interneuron. This is because it inhibits the alpha motor neuron, which normally is responsible for causing muscle contraction. So in summary, when a muscle contracts excessively, the tension that is generated is transmitted to the tendon, which causes activation of the GTO. The GTO sends sensory information to the spinal cord via type 1B 
sensory axons. These then synapse on and activate the inhibitory interneuron, which ultimately inhibits the alpha motor neuron. The net effect of activation of the GTO is an involuntary inhibition of muscle contraction. So it causes forced muscle relaxation. Okay, let's do a question. A man is involved in an extremely intense arm wrestle when his arm suddenly relaxes. Explain the physiologic pathway that caused his arm to suddenly relax. Okay, let's pull up figure 9.5 so you can see what's going on. From figure 9.5, we can see that an intense arm wrestle could transmit significant tension to the GTO. Activation of the GTO could cause sensory information to travel to the spinal cord through type 1B sensory axons. These synapse on the inhibitory interneuron, which inhibits the alpha motor neuron, ultimately resulting in forced relaxation of the corresponding muscle. So the intense arm wrestle activated the GTO, causing this individual's arm to suddenly and involuntarily relax. Okay, let's move on to muscle fiber types. Within muscle, there are two types of muscle fibers you need to be familiar with for step one. These include slow twitch, or type 1 muscle fibers, and fast twitch, or type 2 muscle fibers. Slow twitch muscle fibers are primarily involved in long-lasting, sustained force. Slow twitch muscle fibers are able to achieve this because they are highly concentrated in mitochondria and myoglobin. Myoglobin is a protein similar to hemoglobin, which carries oxygen. However, myoglobin is more abundant in the muscle and is able to pull oxygen from the blood and into the muscle tissue. The abundance of mitochondria allows for the continuous production and supply of ATP, and the abundance of myoglobin allows the muscle to pull in a significant volume of oxygen, which is necessary for the production of ATP. On the other hand, fast twitch fibers are primarily involved in short and forceful movements. While fast twitch fibers have less mitochondria and myoglobin compared to slow twitch fibers, they are able to achieve fast, powerful movements because of their ability to rapidly metabolize ATP. This occurs via anaerobic glycogenolysis as the muscle supply of glycogen is rapidly metabolized. Okay, let's do a question. Two experimental mice are conditioned on two separate treadmills over a several month period. Mouse A runs at a speed of two feet per second for five minutes several times throughout the day. Mouse B runs at a speed of 0.5 feet per second for long durations once a day. How will a biopsy of the muscle fibers of mouse A likely compare to that of mouse B? Okay, from the question stem, we can see that mouse A is undergoing short bursts of high intensity training and mouse B is undergoing longer but easier sustained training. From the previous slide, we learned slow twitch muscle fibers are primarily involved in long-lasting sustained force. So slow twitch is involved in long and sustained exercise. We also learned that fast twitch fibers are primarily involved in short forceful movements. So fast twitch is involved in short, forceful exercise. 
With this in mind, mouse A will likely have an abundance of fast twitch muscle fibers, and mouse B will likely have an abundance of slow twitch muscle fibers. Um, that's all I've got for today, but hopefully that's helpful. Look forward to the rest of this Step 1 Study Smarter series. Please download our app. Sign up for a subscription to our all-audio QBank for more on-the-go learning, and go subscribe to the new Physiology by Physio podcast. Happy studying.